Okay, the scripture that Trey has asked me to read this morning is found in Ezekiel, about two-thirds of the way through your Old Testament, if you'd like to find that. Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, verse 16 through 32, says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood on the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations, and they were scattered throughout the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name, for it was said of them, These are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my my holy name, which is the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the house of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name that you profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you from following and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land. I gave your forefathers, you will be my people, and I will be your God. I will save you from all the uncleanness. I will call you, I will call for you the grain and make it plentiful, and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the fields so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. Well, good morning, folks. Glad you all are here. Hey, let's grab our Bibles. It's always a great thing to bring your Bible to church. So if you would bring, uh, grab your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be plenty of Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. I'd like for us to turn to a couple passages. Both are in the Old Testament. So first off, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 19. So why don't you find that? Second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 19. And then we'll wrap up our sermon in the passage that Jay just read for us in Ezekiel chapter 36. So I'll give you a few moments to find those two passages in Exodus chapter 19 and Ezekiel chapter 36. We have begun a sermon series on what the Bible calls the New Covenant. The New Covenant. Last week, we saw the panorama of the New Covenant uh, and got a brief introduction as to what the New Covenant uh, was. This morning, we're going to discover the purpose of the New Covenant. In other words, why did God initiate this New Covenant made initially with Israel uh, and then given to the church? Uh, why does God promise the new covenant? And there is a distinct purpose behind it. So Exodus 19, Ezekiel 36, the purpose of the new covenant. I trust that you're there close to it. So uh, would you pray with me one more time and then we'll dive into the word of God. 
So let's pray together, church. Father, we are so grateful to be here. It is an incredible privilege for us to be here. For there are many places that we could be this morning and many other things that we can be doing. But there is nothing more significant, uh, nothing more honoring to you than to be here with your people uh, in your house uh, with uh, your word in our lap and to give you the praises of our lips and of our wallets. And we pray that you would be uh, well pleased by all that happens here today. Father, we ask that your spirit would be among us. We ask that you would teach your word through me to these people. And I pray that we would have hearts that are willing to receive it and and, and, uh, lives that would be transformed because of it. And so teach us your purpose, your goal, your agenda for our lives, we pray. And we ask it in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. Well, when Shelly and I were first married, thanks to my in-laws, they took us on a a wonderful trip, truly a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go to Paris, France. We went with my brother and sister-in-law. I had never been to Europe. It was fantastic. Everything there was old. Man, it's old. Much older than, than what we have in this country. And so we, after a few days in Paris, decided to go down south to see the, the French countryside, and we took uh, the train. Now, I had really never been to a true train station like the one in Paris, France. There were a ton of trains, and it was really busy, lots of people. And as you can imagine, at a very busy train station, there were trains uh, lined up going this way and that way, uh, parallel to one another. And uh, we found our particular train, and off we went. And I noticed something that uh, as we were on the train, we started to go, and there was a train, a, a, second, a separate train that was uh, traveling pretty much right alongside us, we were parallel. Uh, and so we were going alongside, and I could look out, and there was the train. But of course, we were heading, headed to, to separate destinations. And so as we uh, sort of moved to the left, uh, that train sort of moved to the right, and of course, we ended up at very different locations, though it, we began sort of on the same track, if you will, in in parallel directions. Well, friends, in in, in a very similar way, I'd like to suggest this morning that there are two competing views of Christianity out there, two competing thoughts about the Christian faith, which may at first seem somewhat similar, as if they're headed in the, the same direction. But the further you go along these train tracks, the more they part ways. And eventually, we're going to see that these are two very different views of the Christian faith. And so, as we begin this morning, I want to ask us to consider which train we're on. Which view of Christianity is the view that most exemplifies our life? See, the most popular version of Christianity is that faith is all about, well, me. Faith is all about me, about what I want, about what God can give to me, and how he can bless me, how he can fit into what I'm doing, my purposes, and my life. It's about having to use one uh, popular book title, Your Best Life Now. That's what Christianity is all about. The, the classic Christian author, A.W. Tozer, he's written a book, and in one of the chapters in that book, he entitles The Utilitarian Christ. The Utilitarian Christ. And he speaks of this first train, if you will, this first version of the Christian faith when he writes, he referring to Christ is often recommended as a wonderfully obliging, but not too discriminatory, big brother, who delights to help us accomplish our ends. 
and who further favors us by forbearing to ask any embarrassing questions about the moral or spiritual qualities of those ends. Friends, that's a good description of the first train, the first view of Christianity. But friends, there's a second, more biblical view of the Christian faith. And it says that, friends, God does not exist for us, but rather we exist for Him. We exist for His purposes and for His glory. That is, He is the Creator and we are the creature. He is the sovereign and while we are His subjects. He is the master and friends, we are the slaves, if you will. This morning, we're going to take a look first at Exodus chapter 19, and then primarily we will look at the passage that was read for us this morning, Ezekiel chapter 36, focusing on verses 16 through 28, which describes God's motivation for giving this new covenant that we introduced last Sunday, and the goal behind it. In short, God has given us new covenant promises chiefly for his own glory for his own reputation, and for his own name's sake. If you were with us last week, we learned what the new covenant was and what it was all about. But this morning, I want us to see why it was given. So let's begin. I've got three points, as every good sermon does. Let's begin with God's intention in Ezekiel, excuse me, Exodus chapter 19. What, my friends, was God's purpose for the nation of Israel. What, what was God's intention for them? Next, we'll turn to Ezekiel 36. We'll see God's indictment of Israel in light of that purpose. And then we'll close with God's initiative in giving the new covenant promises. So let's begin Exodus chapter 19, where we see God's intention for the old covenant people of God, the nation of Israel. And so let's begin starting in verse 5. The question then becomes, why did God bring this particular people group, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt? Why did he bring them into the promised land? And why did he give them his law to live by? Well, I believe the answer in short, is found in Exodus chapter 19, as God calls Moses up to the mountain, right? God calls Moses up to the mountain, Mount Sinai, to receive his word, to receive his law. And there, in verses 5 and 6, we see God's purpose for creating the nation of Israel. Verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me, notice the words here, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to to the Israelites, God says to Moses. And so here I think we can see God's intentions, his purposes for the nation of Israel summed up very nicely in two phrases. He says in verse 6, you will be for me, number one, a kingdom of priests, and number two, a holy nation. Friends, the first speaks to their duty, to their duty, their job, if you will. They were to be a kingdom of priests. So we need to ask ourselves, what is a priest supposed to do? Well, certainly in the Old Testament, a priest offered sacrifices on behalf of the people, Before God, he was, in a sense, a go-between. A go-between between the people and God. And so God here says, My people, you are to be a go-between between me and all the nations of the world. You could say they were to... 
to dispense God's word and to display his worth before the pagan nations around them so that they would look at Israel, they would look at the, the people of God, and they would say what, what Rahab said when she housed the two spies at Jericho. She, she said, The Lord your God is God in heaven above. And on the earth below. In other words, the people surrounding the nation of Israel were to be able to look at them and say, something is going on there. They have a God unlike any other God that we know. So number one, they were to be a kingdom of priests. And we see their duty. But not only that, but we see that they were to be a a distinctive people. Notice the second phrase. Out of all the nations, you will be my treasure treasure possession. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a what kind of nation, church? A holy nation. Not just any kind of nation like the nations around them. They were to be characterized in their actions, in their attitudes, in their interactions with one another and those around them. A holy people, a distinct people, a peculiar people. So you could say that the people of God, in the land of God, living by the word of God, would be the way that God was to go public, to show who he was on planet earth. Friends, don't miss this point. This is incredible when we think about it. The God of the universe was going to stake his reputation, his name, to the actions of his people. That is astounding. Does this sound familiar? This, this language that the people of God would be a, a treasured possession. That the people of God are, are to be like priests. That we are to be a holy nation. Well, if you're familiar with 1 Peter, then you would say yes. Because in 1 Peter, Peter makes it clear that God, well, he has a, a very similar intention for the new covenant people of God. For me and you, for Christians, for the local Church In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, notice how Peter describes the local church. He says, but you are a chosen people. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Does that sound familiar? Of course, we just read it. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness... And into his wonderful light. Friends, though Israel and the church are certainly different entities, we see that the two groups of people essentially have the same purpose, the same calling. God has the same intention for both them and for us. God, once again, in his church, through his people, is seeking to go public with his name and reputation throughout the world because we are a distinct community. One author by the name of uh, uh, Dwight Edwards writes this. He says, once again, God has staked his reputation on flesh and blood. As uh, unbelievers observe the children of God, friends, that's us if you are in Christ, the children of God living in radical holiness, supernatural community, and overflowing grace, they too will be provoked To consider Christ. Friends, this is God's purpose for us as a people. This is his design. Let me ask you a question. I want you to think about when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. When you were born again. And all of the the people and the influences that had a part to play in that decision. How many of us came to faith in Christ? At least um, to a large 
measure. In, in, in large, a large part due to the fact that we came into contact with other Christians and not only heard the gospel from them, but we saw the gospel in them. In other words, the people that were influential and are, and are coming to faith, their lives affected us. Friends, I had the a privilege just a week ago of sitting down with a, a couple, and we were doing a, a, an interview so that they could become members here as a part of the membership process. And, and they were sharing their stories of how they came to faith. And, and one of them shared about her experience, how she was in youth group here at the church, and there was a particular youth pastor who was just a, a, a godly man. And she said this in short. She said, I saw something in him. I, I looked at him and, and, and I thought, I don't have what he has. I want what he has. Friends, that's what Paul uh, uh, Peter means when, when we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I think a very similar story is told by a man named Henry Stanley. See, he was an atheist, a devout atheist living uh, in England. And he, he went to visit a friend of his by the name of David Livingstone. And maybe you've heard of him. He was a, a missionary to Africa. And he writes about his conversion. And I quote, He said, I went to Africa as the biggest atheist in London. But little by little, seeing his sympathy for others, speaking of David Livingstone, seeing his sympathy for others... His piety, his gentleness, his zeal, his earnestness. He says, I was converted by him, although he had not tried to do it. It was Livingstone's, it wasn't Livingstone's preaching that converted me. It was his living. Friends, that's what God intended for the old covenant people of God. And that is what God intends for his new covenant And so we see in Exodus chapter 19 and in 1 Peter 2, God's intentions for his covenant people. But now I would like to jump a little bit uh, further on in the Bible. Let's take a look, and we'll be there the rest of our time, at Ezekiel chapter 36. So if you were in Exodus 19, let's focus in on Ezekiel chapter 36. Because there we see God's indictment of Israel in light of his intentions for them, right? They were to be a royal priesthood. They were to be a holy people, but they they weren't, by and large. And so let's jump then to Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 16, where we see God's indictment of his old covenant people. So here's the question that is going to be answered in this text. How did Israel do at their purpose? How did the old covenant people of God uh, do at being a treasured possession? at being a kingdom of priests, at being a holy nation? Well, I think the answer is that they were a colossal fail, to put it nicely. And so starting in verse 16 through 18, we see the reasons for God's indictment as we see God assess his people. Let's begin in verse 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land... They defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them. Now, now I want us to focus on these words. Because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it 
with their idols. And so here we see in this opening section two specific reasons why God is indicting his people. First of all, he says they defiled it because they shed blood in the land. And secondly, they defiled it because of their idols. But, but we need to ask the question, what does God mean when he says that they defiled the land? What does it mean to defile something? Well, it simply means to make it dirty, to, to pollute it, if you will. It was, it was probably a month ago now, and my family and I were in our car, and we were driving. I don't know where we were driving, but we were heading to Paxton, and uh, we were uh, on 45, and of course there is a train track that runs parallel uh, to 45, if I'm getting my geography right here. And uh, as we were going, we always looked for the trains, and lo and behold, there was a train, and it started to come, and I said, look, kids, there's a train, right? And the boys are excited because they like to see trains. And this particular train, uh, there was graffiti Pretty graffiti, right? Nice pictures, but, but graffiti on, on the, the cars that were passing by. And one of my children noticed it, and they said, what, what, what's that about? You know, how come they colored on the train? And so we tried to explain, well, okay, this is what graffiti is. Yes, it's very pretty, but they're really not supposed to do that because they don't, you know, it's, it's not theirs. And one of, I'm not sure who it was, one of my children said in, a, in such an innocent voice, why would they do that? I mean, why would they color on something that's not theirs? Good question, right? It's They defiled it. They made it dirty. They polluted it. Friends, there are two reasons that God gives for his old covenant people uh, uh, graffitiing, if you will, the promised land. Number one, it says that they shed blood. That is, they were violent with one another. And number two, they defiled it with idols. So first of all, instead of trusting in God and obeying and worshiping God alone, they turned to idols. They turned to pagan idols. And in a sense, by turning to other gods, they were telling the nations around them this clear message. They were saying, hey nations, our God cannot be trusted. Hey you pagan nations out there, our God can't be trusted. We need other gods. And secondly, they were saying, by doing violence to their neighbor, instead of loving their neighbor, they, were, they did violence to one another. And it's like they were graffitiing on the land. Not only God can't be trusted, but they were saying to the nations around them, people don't matter. It doesn't matter how you treat people. It doesn't matter what you do in your relationship with others. And in doing so, they graffitied all over God's promised land. They had failed to be a distinct people, a holy nation. They had failed in their duty to be a light to the nations, to be a kingdom of priests. So friends, let me ask you a question as we bring it down to our situation. Can this sort of thing happen among God's new covenant people? Because we have a very same purpose, do we not? We are to be a kingdom of priests. We are to be a light to those around us. And we are to be a distinct people, a a holy people. And yet, friends, just as the old covenant people can fail to live up to God's uh, intentions, so we can too. In fact, Edwards, again, writes these words. He says, when we turn to other gods, friends, do you ever turn to other gods? I know I do. You turn to the idol's of America, I know I do at times. He says, when we turn to other gods, be it money or career or pornography or possessions or whatever it may be to meet our needs, we too, as the people of God, proclaim to all around us, our God is not enough. Friends, when we get wrapped up in the idols of our hearts, we are declaring to the world around us, God's not sufficient. 
We need something else. He's not good enough. He continues. He says, when we treat one another with indifference or disdain, when legalistic standards matter more than our fellow saints, when church is more like a corporation than a family, he says, we communicate to the world that people really don't matter all that much. And so we've seen God's intention for both his old and new covenant people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. We've seen God's indictment. You have shed blood. You have turned to idols. And friends, we can do the same. What then would be the results for God's old covenant people, the nation of Israel? Because they did that, in verses 19 through 21, we turn from the reasons of God's uh, indictment to the results of God's indictment. Number one, they were exiled. Notice verse 19. God says, I dispersed them among the nations, and they were scattered throughout the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. Friends, that is bad. The people of God had been given the land of God, and they said, God said, you can stay here forever, but if you break my covenant law, the ultimate curse will be that I will remove you from your land. And that is exactly, in the context of Ezekiel, what had happened. And that's bad. I, don't, I can't imagine what it's like to be a refugee. Can you think about that? Your home, demolished. Your livelihood, taken away. You are forced to go to a country not your own to essentially live as, as slaves. That's bad. Do you think God cared about his people despite that? Of course he did. Did he care that they were suffering through that? Of course he did. But friends, not only was the result that they were exiled, that his people suffered because of their sins, but there's something else. In verses 20 through 21, there was a second result of God's people failing to be what they are supposed to be. And it was chiefly that God's name was profaned. Let's look at 20 and 21. And whenever they, wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. I want you to take a look how often God mentions his name in this little section here. They profaned my holy name, for it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Friends, what does it mean to profane God's name? Well, a person's name is their reputation, right? It's, it's, it's what other people think of them. You care about your name, don't you? I care about my name, about my reputation. Let me ask you a question. Does God care about his name? Yeah. Does God care about his reputation? Yeah. Does he care about how we make his reputation look? Yeah, right? In other words, their lives and their exile made God look ordinary. That's, that's what the root of this word, to profane something, that's what it means. It means that they made God look like, eh, meh, right? Ho-hum, ordinary, run-of-the-mill idol. In other words, they lowered who really, God really was, and they made him look less than that. And as a result, they would be scattered among the nations, and God would be mocked among the nations instead of magnified among the nations like he had intended. Friends, let me just sort of apply this to us here. 
I think one of the chief lessons that we can learn from this section is that um, sin is bad. And that's kind of simple. Sin is bad for a multitude of reasons. Sin is bad not just because it hurts us. Is sin bad because it hurts our lives? Yes. Uh, Is it bad because it hurts our relationships? Yes, with others and with God. Yes, yes, and yes. Sin is bad because it brings harm to us and to others. Yes and amen. But friends, there's an additional thing we see in this passage. It is maybe more heinous because it cripples God's reputation. Because it profanes his name. Because it makes him look ordinary. And so following God's indictment, we see God's initiative. So here's the question. God has had exiled his people. His name was profaned among them. And so the question that we have to answer in the time remaining is this. Would God do something about it? I mean, is God just going to allow his old covenant people and his new covenant people, is he just going to allow his people to, to drag his name through the mud? Is he going to stand for that? Well, the, the answer is a resounding no. And we see it in verses 22 through 24 as we see God's initiative to to, to make these new covenant promises. Therefore, say to the Israelites, notice the connection, right? Therefore, because they had profaned his name, because they defiled the land with idolatry and bloodshed, therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Now, we're simple people, right? Let's, Let's take a look at this. This is pretty clear, right? We can't miss this. For whose sake is God going to act to save his people? It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name that you profaned among them. Wow! Very clearly, we see here that God is going to act in a salvific way. That God is going to do something about his people's sins and their exile. He's going to act. He's going to be a savior to them. Why? Was it primarily for their sake? Yes or no? No. It wasn't primarily for their sake. It wasn't primarily because they were suffering in exile, though they were. And God cared about that. He, friends, he cared more about his name. It's true then, and it's true today. Nothing matters more to God than the glory of his name. Friends, this is what makes you hop on train number two. Nothing matters more to God than the glory of his name. The Bible is replete with references of God Acting for his glory. In fact, in Ephesians 1, we have this wonderful passage. We have all these spiritual blessings in Christ. And Paul um, enumerates many of these blessings. And they relate to salvation. Friends, he, he speaks of the forgiveness of sins that we can have through faith in Christ. He speaks of the indwelling Holy Spirit there in Ephesians 1 that we can have through faith in Christ. He speaks of the reconciliation that we have in God through faith in Christ. All of these wonderful things that God does for us because he loves us. But there is a resounding refrain in that section. God does this. There's the forgiveness of sins. And then Paul says over and over, for the glory of his name. 
for the glory of His name, for the praise of His glory. Look at it time and time again. Friends, God saves sinners chiefly for the glory of His name. That's why God acts. Does He love us? Yes. Does He care for us? Yes. Though we matter much to God, friends, we don't matter most to God. We don't matter most to God. God matters most to God. Why is this? It's because there's no greater reality in the universe than God. Friends, just just ponder this for a moment. If God were to value something other than that which is most valuable in the universe, if he was to put that which was secondary and make it primary, then he would disqualify himself from being God. God values his glory in his name, in his reputation. It is infinitely valuable. And everything else is secondary. When we understand this central truth of Christianity and of the new covenant, because what we're going to see as we jump into this passage continued next week, all of these wonderful uh, new covenant promises and blessings, things that God is going to do for us, it's in the context of he does those things for us for his glory. For his namesake. And when we, when we understand this progressively, we have a new paradigm to live through. It's sort of like a, a fresh pair of, of glasses. We see things more clearly. I remember when I was 16 years old and I was first diagnosed as being blind. Not technically, not technically, but I, could, I couldn't see, right? And I didn't know it. I was, I was playing baseball and I was an awful hitter. And my dad said, hey, can you see that ball? Well, kind of. Let's go get you checked. Lo and behold, I got some glasses. Next time I'm up at bat, wow, it looks like a beach ball coming down the the pipe, right? I can see. It's glorious. Before that, I saw reality, but it was fuzzy. but, but when I got those glasses, it was, it was crystal clear. Friends, something similar happens when we are struck with the fact that God exists for the beauty of his, of his glory and his name. That that is his, his purpose for us. And we are delighted in that. That's what satisfies our soul. And so, take school or, or work, for instance. When we have these glasses on, if you will... We don't do it just to make straight A's or to to get a paycheck or to advance our own personal agenda. Those are all good things. But we see work and school as an arena in which we can glorify God by our efforts, by the way that we work. We see it as an opportunity with our schoolmates and with our co-workers to share the gospel so that the glory of God might be advanced. What about marriage? How does putting on this, these, these gospel glasses, if you will, how does it affect our marriage? Well, instead of demanding that our needs and expectations be met, it becomes a place where, where we can showcase God's self-sacrificial love. We can demonstrate to the world what forgiveness looks like. What about raising of kids? If we put on these gospel glasses, we, we see the raising of children as, you know what, it, it, it's not really about good behavior although I want that. It's not all about success in school or in sports or or that they have a great social life or that they're they're pretty or handsome or strong. And those are great things. But but that's not the goal of our parenting. The goal of our parenting is that we want our our home to be a little incubation center where, where these children grow up to be godly men and women where the gospel is both taught and caught and we send out children like arrows, right, 
like, like the Proverbs teaches us, right? Uh, the Psalms teaches like arrows to go out and make an impact for Christ in our world. That is what happens when we see and understand the point of our passage today. God exists for His glory, and He saves us for His namesake. Well, let's end in verse 23. The tail end of verse 23, <clears throat> God makes a rather stunning statement. It's easy just to pass by, but let's not do that. The tail end of verse 23. Then God says, starting in verse 23, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the nations you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I improved holy, now notice these words, through you before their eyes. What is God promising here? God is looking at his old covenant people who are in exile because of their idolatry and sin. And he's saying to them that there will come a day when I demonstrate my holiness through you. And I demonstrate my holiness to the nations in their eyes through you. God was once again going to prove that he was a holy God through the nations, through the people that had actually defamed him. So let me just ponder this as we close. Hadn't God already tried this with the nation of Israel? Like, hadn't he already tried to do this and it was a miserable fail? Like, he had already tried to demonstrate his glory through those people and it hadn't worked. So what would be the difference? What would be different? Well, friends, what would be different is the supernatural provisions spelled out for us in the New Covenant, in the verses that follow. Next week with the panorama of the New Covenant in mind and the purpose of the New Covenant in mind, we will take a look, an initial look, at these provisions of the New Covenant from Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. And we're going to see these provisions that would make uh, God be able to demonstrate once again His holiness through His people. So let's close with this. A very simple question. very simple question. Which train are you on? That's the question I want to leave you with. Which train are you on? Are you on the train that says God is all about me and my benefit? Or are you on the train that says it's all about God and His glory? Friends, if you're on the first, and we're all on the first, aren't we, from time to time? If you're on the, fo- the first, it's not too late to pull that emergency cord. You've been on a train before, right? Pull that emergency cord, stop the train, climb off, and get yourself to a station to that second train, right? And you can hop aboard that train. So let's pray, and then we'll close with a benediction. Father,